Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And it is Monday, April 12, 2021. We've got a lot to talk about today, Con. We've As got, always. Uh, Greg Gutfeld, uh, his big debut yeah. a week or so ago. Taken late night by storm. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about the tragedy of a, of a child actor. You know, where things just don't go right. You know, it's so difficult to emerge from that, from that cocoon. Um, it's rough. We're going to get into that. We're going to talk about whether toxic partisanship has just gone over the top now because... Apparently, some critic of Ted Cruz is, is hoping that a pimp will um, beat him up. I, I, to me, that's that's a sign that the toxic partisanship has gone uh-huh. too far. Yeah. We talk about whether the George Floyd trial uh, is going to result in a fair verdict. Is it possible, given the concern by the jury, that there could be some violence if they come up with the wrong decision? And finally, we're going to get into uh, court packing. Will Joe Biden go bold and try to pack the court? He's appointed a uh, blue ribbon commission. Go big, Joe. Yeah, Joe's uh, Joe's going going long. Yeah. Go go big or go home or whatever that expression is. <laughs> so, uh, Greg Gutfeld, uh, for folks who are big uh, Fox News fans, you know that he's uh, a regular on the Five. Has been for years. He's had his own late night show in uh, on the weekends. And doggone it, Fox is going to be taking on Colbert and Kimmel and Fallon because Gutfeld now has a comedy show starting at eleven o'clock Eastern. Debatable. Yeah. So, well, you know, you can. You Television show. Give your take on that. So he is at least the second half hour of his one hour show, Monday through Friday, is going to be going up against the big guys. So right. the it's issue interesting is that they, they sort of offset him a little bit. Right. Yeah. Interesting strategy there. It, well, yeah, I think all of these one hour shows that Fox and, and MSNBC and CNN have, it's always, you know, top of the hour to top of the next hour. So they, they never start, you know, at 730 and go to 830 for whatever reason. So Here's the question. I mean, isn't it about time we had some balance in late night? I remember when I was a big fan of Johnny Carson years ago, you had no idea where Johnny stood politically because he thought he was pretty clever. And I think maybe he was. He didn't want to piss off half or more of the audience by letting everybody know that he was conservative or progressive or whatever. And so it was it was a real mystery. They really stayed away from politics. Not so much now. I think I know where Stephen Colbert stands on the old spectrum. Yeah. And it's worked for him. I mean, my goodness it pretty much from the day trump was inaugurated stephen colbert took off like a rocket so but they're, they're all left of center all three of them uh, right. some of them very much so i, don't I mean know jimmy fallon is all that that's that's kind of that's uh, exactly who i was going to bring up because it's a really interesting question it's not just a well you know what is this what is going to get me the best ratings or, or what does the host personally believe uh, although i think those are two you know, big driving factors with Jimmy Fallon. He very explicitly tries to keep it light, right? He's trying to not get too into anything. Uh, recently, uh, the the Amazon, uh, one of his guests brought up uh, Amazon and the drive to unionize right. uh, uh, a warehouse uh, or groups of warehouses in, in Alabama uh, and uh, watching the tape of him, you know, change the subject immediately and get away from it instantly was dramatic. He he really does not want to talk about politics, probably because he's in that that sort of uh, the, the history of Maybe, Johnny Carson. But as, 
I think you would agree that on those occasions where he does kind of stray into politics, it's pretty clear he's left of center. He's made no secret of that. I mean, he had Trump on and yanked on his hair. Yeah, right? and he paid the price. His ratings right. went into the toilet. Right. I mean, this he is a yank on the hair. He ruffled the hair. Ruffled. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, this is a this is a world. We he yanked in. the hair. The Secret Service would have given him a warning <laughs> shot in the leg. <laughs> Uh, we live in a very... Take your hands very, off the hair, sir. Take your hands off the hair. <laughs> very, a uh, very uh, uh, divided world where uh, yep. where politics has seeped more and more into everybody's lives in a visible and obvious way, where I think politics has always been a part of most people's lives and the i and it you know it ebbs and it flows that people are aware of the impact that, pol- uh, that pol- politics and pol- politicians have on right. them and partisanship not you know throwing up the flag as, as i think we're going to get into soon about toxic partisanship not talking about whether t- partisanship is bad or good or whatever i'm just saying people's awareness of it and their willingness to consume media that it is also aware of it has changed, I think. And I think the audience is more politically savvy, connected. And if not, you know, I'm not when I say savvy and connected, I don't mean that they're geniuses now. I don't mean that they're that they're actually so they're smarter not like and better about with the Right. Yeah. The magical pills. Yeah. No, this is this is a situation where people are steeped in politics so much that if you then turn around and, and watch a, a current events late night show and it's not about politics, well, then all you've got left is Jimmy Fallon lip sync battles. There's nothing else to talk about because our country is consumed by the fire of constant crises of climate change and well, wealth inequality and racial justice. Yeah, but some COVID. would say it'd be nice if we took a little break from that. You know, when your head's hitting the pillow at night, you just want to be entertained for right. a few minutes. Honestly, Do we have to continue to talk about politics? The proof seems to be in the pudding that people want to keep talking about politics, I guess. that they view entertainment through this lens of how does this speak okay, so to maybe, my politics? Maybe we've changed, but I, I think I got to think that Gutfeld is going to do well. First, I think he's he's really funny. I think he, he does a, an excellent job. And secondly, you know, there's so many people. I mean, it's one of the secrets of Fox is that they're the only one out there appealing to the people right of center. And so all the other guys, as big and powerful as they are, they're carving up the the, the left of center pie. And Gutfeld is, is going to get the right of center. That's true. Pie. And now, I, Fox has done that for years in other contexts and so news and business news and uh, right wing opinion. They have had the whole pie and they're being challenged now by OAN and Newsmax and the rest. And so they're going to feel what MSNBC and CNN feel where they're chopping up that same part of the uh, portion, at least to some degree. I don't see Fox, you know, suffering from that too much. But yeah, in the entertainment sphere, you're right. Now, I think actually because like the the right wing equivalent of Stephen Colbert's show or the Daily Show before it or the Colbert Report or, you know, uh, the, the Daily when Show he put now. on a show in his garage when he was eight. <laughs> right. Uh, you want to go all back to the first in right. LinkedIn entry for right. Stephen Colbert. Right, right. Uh, the, the right-wing equivalent of those things is actually Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. Yeah, they're not explicitly a talk show where they're making jokes, but these guys are going on TV and they they spend the entire hour lampooning the left in the same way that Stephen Colbert yeah, but goes on. There's such a fundamental difference right. between O'Reilly and Colbert type, and, and excuse me, Tucker Carlson type show as opposed to an entertainment show where you know Beyonce's on there and you know the Foo Fighters are there. I, mean, I don't think it, it. I don't think it is different well, for the audience. Then that's that's sad if we if we've so blurred the line between politics and entertainment. Let me share with you, Connor, a personal reason why I'm yeah. ro- rooting for Greg Gutfeld, because uh-huh. I'm, 
Well, I actually did have an encounter with, with the great man. Several years ago, I was walking along uh, the streets of Manhattan, minding my own business. And he mugged you. And there's Greg Gutfeld never coming mind, toward mind. me. Yeah. And he did not mug me. And so I thought to myself, oh my gosh, you know, she's not going to want to speak to the normals. But but <laughs> I, I, did, I did actually speak to him. And the reason I did is because just a night or two before, I had seen him on Bill O'Reilly. And you may remember that back in the day, O'Reilly would have Greg Gutfeld and a bunch of other folks, sort of a rotating cast of, uh, you know, fun characters. Kind of like Beyonce in the Foo Fighters. Exactly. Right. Regularly on. And there... There he was. And O'Reilly liked to kind of make fun of Greg Gutfeld. And he was in the midst of doing that. And I noticed, I couldn't help but notice, the camera panned over to Greg. And Greg uh, pushed his glasses up on his nose. Only he didn't use his index finger. Oh, he used a different finger. Interesting. And I thought, that is interesting. And so when I saw Greg Gutfeld a couple of days later on the streets of Manhattan, I said to him, I introduced myself. I said, hello, you know, I'm a big fan uh, of so right on and O'Reilly. I, and I had to say, you know, that was, that was a pr- pretty good move the, the other right. night. And Greg looked at me and he said, Oh no, no, I don't think I don't think you got that right. I, I didn't I didn't do that. And then he walked on and, and we've never actually and he gave you a big wink. We've never actually exchanged words since. So uh, I I don't know who the truth maybe I was, you know, on magic mushrooms and he's a comedian. And got it wrong. He was telling you a joke. Of course he was flipping off Bill O'Reilly. Everybody at home was flipping off the screen too. I only it seems like I only see celebrities in Manhattan for some reason. Years ago I was dense. in a restaurant in Manhattan and in comes Bill Murray in a long really? trench coat. And he's kind of racing. He's kind of running. He's, I think, oh my gosh, he's going to have he's a big meal be. here. We'll be able to stare at him. We'll be able to ask him for his autograph. And he runs up the stairs. It's a two-story restaurant. Uh, and he runs up the stairs. And he disappears for a minute. And then he, he comes down. And then he's, then he's gone. He leaves. And we're all disappointed because how can yeah. we bother him? <laughs> and I say to the waiter, I said, gee, that Bill Murray, he was in. He's, and the waiter says, oh yeah, he comes in here to go to the bathroom sometimes. So what this restaurant was Bill's personal <laughs> Toilet. Toilet, yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, the other when you're time, that famous, yeah, you can do they anything. Let you do it. You can do anything you want. So, my other encounter was with Jeff Goldblum. I was at JFK waiting for my uh, flight. Uh, I was at the gate, and and I see Jeff Goldblum coming along one of these people mover things, and Running as he gets closer and closer, I, I realize, oh my goodness, this is Jeff Goldblum, the Jeff Goldblum, and as he he's about to get opposite of me, about thirty feet away, and I and I have to ask myself once again the question: Do I bother him? And, and as, always, as always, the answer comes the, back. The, I come back. This and I, time? To my, yes. Yes. <laughs> and so I had just seen him a night or two before, just like the Greg Gutfeld deal. I'd seen, got, uh, I'd seen uh, Jeff Goldblum on Letterman. And so I, I yell out to him. I say, Jeff. And of course, now he's panicking because, you know, some crazy person, some weirdo stalker. Has ID'd him. Yeah, has ID'd him. Like anybody, Thank God for anybody masks. Anybody on the planet wouldn't know that's Jeff Goldblum. These celebrities now, they're so safe with all he, these masks. He takes his glasses off, nobody would recognize him. But he had his glasses on. So I say, Jeff. And he Jeff. looks at me with a very trepidatious Jeff. look. And I say, great job on Letterman. And I give him a thumbs up. That's all I say. Thumbs great up. job on Letterman. You know, what he, you know what he says? What he says? He says nothing. But you know what he does? What? He mouths the words, Nice. He mouthed the got it. He didn't actually utter the words. Well, you know, he's in an It was so classy. Yeah. It was just the kind of move you'd expect from a Jeff Goldblum. Very, Goldberg. very classy. So we're going to root for Matt Gutfeld. Uh, next topic, uh, child Greg, actors. Greg, Greg Gutfeld. Ch- child actors. I think it's so sad that people are so hard on this Matt Gates, uh, Gates guy. Uh, really? Is it Gates or Gates? Uh, Gates. Okay, so Gates. I uh, we you can't know, wait to hear this. about the, oh, the, the sex and the women and the underage. And so, don't they know to cut him? Because you know what the, the child actor syndrome comes 
honor. When somebody Child, has what? the attention and the money, it, it ruins their what life. What are you basically. talking about? Oh, you didn't know Matt Gates? He was Eddie Munster back in the Munsters oh, in the sixties. You're you going to make you didn't fun know of that? the man just because he looks like a child Frankenstein? Are you telling me he <laughs> he's not Eddie Munster, the actor? I'm not telling you he doesn't look like a child Frankenstein because oh, he does. Wow! But so now I feel all kinds of a fool. Oh I, I've just God. been operating this assumption that we should cut him some slack. Because and now we're going to get canceled. Oh boy! All right, so I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go oh. talk to my friend Paul Peterson. You, okay, Paul Peterson, you may remember Connor played uh, Jeff Stone on the Donna Reed Show mm-hmm. in the late '50s, early '60s. I don't remember that because it was 30 years before I was born. But yes, and so he was a very successful child actor, and then he formed a, a group, a support group called a Minor Consideration. To oh, help, I actually have heard that. Yeah, yeah, to help people who have their lives kind of messed up yeah. with drugs and the attention and the money stolen from them, and so yeah. on. And so. Uh, a shout out to, to Paul Peterson. He's terrific. But uh, I guess I can't be referring Matt Gates to Paul Peterson because not you're in, telling me he, he wasn't Eddie Munster. Not in this specific scenario. No. Um, but you know what? I think Matt Gates could probably use all the help he can get at the moment. He's going to need it. So toxic partisanship is next up on the agenda, Connor. Actually, Can't we're, we're going to get to this uh, after we pause. A Democrat wants a pimp to beat up Ted Cruz, <laughs> which I think is wrong, frankly. But we're going to get into the details uh, after we pause. In the meantime, Con's going to tell you how to subscribe to and rate this here podcast. Yeah, so uh, check us out on whatever podcast platform it is you use. Um, and uh, that's probably Apple Podcasts, because most people out there use Apple Podcasts. But it might be Stitcher. It might be Spotify. It might be Podcast Addict. It might be whatever else. And make sure that you don't just pull down our episode every week, but you actually click the like or subscribe or follow button. It's a different name on every platform. And leave us a review and leave us a little star you know, rating, because every little bit helps. And we love the, uh, the feedback. We get to you know, see uh, what the adoring public wants. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Noel Oates. And I'm Connor Oates. can't believe I got that wrong about uh, Matt Gates not being the Eddie Munster child <laughs> actor. So, toxic partisanship. A progressive uh, congressional candidate from Tennessee. He's backed by the Justice Democrats. The, this is the group behind the, the left-wing Democrats like uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez yeah, and yeah. Uh, Ilhan Omar and so on. Yeah. Uh, this, this candidate has a history of inflammatory social media posts, including calls for violence against Republican lawmakers. So That's not great. She, she recently... Um, texted uh, or tweeted, I'm not sure, allow Pelosi to hire the best pimp that Memphis or Detroit has to offer to smack the blank out of Ted Cruz and the rest of them. You know the ones. So also on the list of suggestions uh, were uh, blow up Mar-a-Lago and disappear Mitch to some secret CIA prison. Now, let's give her the benefit of the doubt and assume okay, that this, I'm, I'm these were just jokes. I'm ready to give her the benefit of the doubt. these were just jokes. Yes. But aside from her jokes, her Facebook history does include a post from several years ago about how she was attending a speech del- being delivered by um, a Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan uh, and, and a May 2020 post declaring, if you vote for Trump, you are a racist. So... So should we just give her, cut her some slack here and, and just say, well, she's having some fun on social media or, or should we be worried that some people might take her seriously and actually go out and hire the, the best pimp in Memphis to, uh, to beat Ted Cruz upside the head? Look, obviously, jokes about physical violence against other people are by default not a good idea. They're generally not very funny. And they're 
theoretically dangerous right. because they create a climate in which a bunch of crazy people out there actually go through with stuff, right? Is it funny to joke about how Rand Paul's neighbor is my hero because he beat the shit out of Rand? <laughs> right. Yes, it's funny. But it does making jokes about that contribute to a, a more violent world? Yes, in some way, it also does. Did Ted Cruz explicitly endorse a political movement that led to a violent insurrection that killed seven people, including a cop at the Capitol? But two yes. wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. But I just thought that up. Very, very smart. But the idea that we're saying, look, this woman's speech is the reason that po politics is toxic in this country. That's that's not accurate. Politics, politics is toxic in this country because one side of the political spectrum is drinking from a fire hose of fascist propaganda and has for 50 years. And the other side is ill-equipped to deal with that. And it's been a very grim couple of decades for us trying to reconcile with that. We all sat around and were complacent about the idea that politics could get dirtier than it was. When we saw how bad Obama, badly Obama was treated, we all sat around and said, man, that was really bad. That was like the, the depths of how bad it could get. Nothing could get worse than the racism and the lies and the misin misinformation, disinformation, in fact, about Obama and, you know, birtherism and the fact that he's a socialist when he's clearly not and all these things. We were so sure that Hillary was going to win. We were so sure that Hillary, everyone, even Republicans. The odds makers were sure. Yeah, the Republicans were sure that Hillary was going to win. We thought that we were special. We thought that we were immune <laughs> to politics getting worse than it is. And everybody at every moment thinks that we are immune to things getting worse than they are right now. As we look around with COVID, we see that the plague that is, you know, has, has affected our country greatly at every moment in the past, you could trace back, you know, public opinion and and think everyone was too complacent at every given moment thinking, well, it can't get worse than it is right now. And so, yeah, it's dangerous to make these sorts of theoretically pro-violent jokes because we can all wave our hands and say, oh, it's not. No one's going to do anything about it. You know, no one's going to actually beat up Ted Cruz. But yeah, you shouldn't be making those jokes. And it's it's not it's not a close call either. But. Is that toxic partisanship in this country? No, toxic partisanship in this country comes from the structure of the country, the structure of politics and the messaging that the major political parties. Okay. Choose. So we'll, so we'll put it in a different bucket. Yeah. That metaphor of yours drowning from a fire hose of fascist propaganda. It's a very unpleasant <laughs> image. That's really. me drinking from a fire hose. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, we talked the other day in the, on the podcast about vaping being banned <laughs> and about how you you might blow your jaw off if, <laughs> because the vaping devices explode. Yeah, yeah, Same yeah. thing. If you're going to drink from a higher fire hose, fire hose yeah. it's evocative. Propaganda. It's very evocative. Going. I, I'm, I'm a little queasy <laughs> thinking about yeah. it. Uh, so let's talk Derek Chauvin. Uh, yeah. He's on trial in Minneapolis uh, for the death of George Floyd. The question is, how can a guy get a fair trial if the jury thinks the town is going to burn if they vote not guilty? Now, between you and me, uh, from what I've seen, the video and so on, I think I'd vote guilty. I mean, you know, this yeah. is the presumption of innocence thing. I'm not on the jury. I'm not prejudging. I'm just telling you. Sure yeah. looks guilty to me. But 
Uh, is it really appropriate for Black Lives Matter uh, activist Maya Eccles to threaten that cities will be on fire? Those are those are the words. Cities will be on fire if Derek Chauvin is not convicted of killing Floyd. I gosh, that seems that's 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 wrong. I I, I think it's really bad to have a, a climate where a jury might feel intimidated, regardless of how guilty we think this cop is. Uh, and, you know, you think back to the Rodney King situation back in the 1990s where Rodney King sure looked guilty to me. He was barely moving and they were wailing away uh, with nightsticks on him and caught on tape, goes to trial. Jury votes not guilty in the state court proceeding. Federal government turns around and says, huh, not so fast. We're going to put a second trial on because he did, so, you know, with the separate charges depriving him of his civil rights. Yeah. And do you really think? After the riots in Los Angeles resulting from the not guilty jury, do you really think that that jury could put out of their mind completely like mindfulness meditation? You know, oh, the image of burning city is it entered, entered my head. I'm going to dismiss it in a non-judgmental way. Yeah, yeah, good luck. First of all, why didn't the judge move it to a different city? Right. I mean, we moved the Oklahoma City bomber case to Denver because the powers that be, the judges knew it would be very difficult to get a fair trial in Oklahoma City. Right. So why wouldn't he have moved it out of Minneapolis? And and now that it's still there, aren't we worried I mean, this is it, going to be an automatic check the box? Of course, we don't want riots in Minneapolis. Boom, he's guilty. Would you have, I mean, would moving it out of the jurisdiction have changed? I think it would help. I know I mean, everybody says, well, everybody's like O.J. Simpson or Michael Jackson. Everybody, you could go to Zimbabwe and, and they'd all have heard the same level of publicity as in Tulsa or Los Angeles. I'm not sure that's true. I, mean, I think if you're to, out of the community that was directly impacted by something, I think you're probably going to get a more objective jury. I mean, maybe you are, but you also we also have to consider what objectivity means when somebody has a right to, you know, uh, in this case, he has a right to a jury of his peers. He doesn't have a right to a jury of people who don't know what police brutality is. He doesn't have a right to go find a bunch of you know Buddhist monks who've never well, heard of America. Well, it's even worse than that because I misspoke a minute ago. I believe the the way this drill works is if you move the trial, you uh, the judge moves, his staff moves, or her staff moves, and I think the jurors move. I think the jurors mm. are the locals, but mm. then they go to a different seat. I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah. We'll check it for the next podcast. Yeah. But, but it, you know, it, it, it's tough either it really, way. Big picture. I mean, I, we can concoct a scenario where the facts are close and the jury is torn and they have to make some sort of heartbreaking decision about whether they... Uh, convict this guy or give him a little bit more time than he should, or uh, not time because they don't control sentencing. The judge controls sentencing, but uh, well, they have a separate sentencing phase. But it, it, they 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 amp up how guilty they find him to avoid uh, a public backlash in some weird, very specific edge case. But that's a risk that the whole legal system runs in every scenario, and it's very unlikely that I think it comes down. Where the the jurors are, you know, not sure and have to go with their gut feeling about what people's reaction will okay. be out in the okay. world. Let me, let me. I think generally jurors are from the public, and the public feels strongly, just like jurors do. Let me hit and you with as, a tough question. As well, hold on. As we as we all watch the trial together, 
We are all basically jurors, right? We all learn what the jurors learn, and the jurors are going to feel the same way we do. And so it's very rare, that I think, that the jurors well, are going to come we to a We learn very a little more because we, we have free access to press coverage, and, and there are a lot, sometimes some very interesting provocative details. That, for example, the stuff that the judge would exclude true. and make sure the jury doesn't hear about very it. Very true. So let me ask you this tough question. Um, if somebody said, as one of these activists said, if yeah. George Floyd's murderer is not sentenced, just know that all hell is going to break loose. Don't be surprised when buildings are on fire. Just saying, close quote. Should that person be charged with jury tampering? What if it turns out that the jury heard that? They're not supposed to. And they declare later, well, yeah, that's kind of why we voted the way we did. I mean, should that person face criminal charges so or, should, or should people just shut up when yeah. it comes to saying things that might be intimidating to jurors? I, I, I you can't definitely. bribe them. You can't threaten them. You can't call them up on the phone and threaten them. That would be a crime. Yes. And, and, and jury tampering is a very it's a crime with elements in, in law that every crime has elements. And those elements that say the elements of burglary would be one breaking two entering three, a dwelling house four in at night. Five with the intent to commit a felony therein. So there's five pieces of that puzzle that you have to put together before you can get somebody for burglary, mm -hmm. which is different than robbery, which might have not have the dwelling house and the night thing, blah, blah, blah. So jury tampering has its own elements that I can't quote off the uh, top of my head here. But big picture, jury tampering is a, a tool used to intimidate the jury, and it's directly targeted at a jury or a jury pool. And it would be, you know, as you put, bribing or threatening the jurors themselves or maybe their community or, you know, t uh, t tainting the jury pool before the jury is picked by making public statements to the press. Now, in this scenario, we've got somebody who's saying something, expressing something to a, a maybe even to a reporter, um, uh, maybe even with the knowledge that it might go out over the air, but not targeting the jurors and trying to change uh, their minds as much as they're saying, this is what's going to happen in my city if uh, the, the outcome comes out this way. So I don't know. Kind of a fine distinction you're drawing there. I am, but maybe you're right. Maybe you're right that it could qualify as the crime of jury tampering uh, under the right set of circumstances where this person was actually trying to influence the outcome or was maybe reckless or negligent as to the possibility of influencing the outcome of this trial. But big picture, overall, it really does seem to me that it's not going to be a problem that uh, that people are too swayed from their convictions on the jury for what they want because they're worried that the public will react badly because as well, we are largely seeing the same things, jury and public, especially in this case, we're largely seeing the same things. Almost everything's out there, if not everything. And so if the, the, people of Minneapolis feel very strongly, then the jurors of Minneapolis are going to feel very strongly and they're going to come to the correct conclusion. And when people say, yeah, if this terrible law passes, there will be a riot. Or if this uh, verdict comes out, what is you know, almost objectively the wrong way, there will be a riot. Or if this, uh, you know, public uh, official doesn't put into place co uh, COVID restrictions to protect, you know, the, Amer uh, you know, American citizens from getting sick and dying, there will be a riot. Or if they don't pass climate change legislation to save our children's future and planet, there will be a riot. All of those things are not a threat. They are a description of if, you, if the democratic process and our justice system are going to break, then the system has 
will like the people will respond to it. The, the premise of America is that the people are in charge and that the system has to work for us. And if it's explicitly obvious to a large segment of the population that the system is broken and not working for the people, then they've got to do something about it. And I would say going out and burning down a target is hardly the worst thing in the entire world. Now, can I see you the don't par- have target stock? It's true. Can I see the parallel to the capital riot? Can I see that what I just said of a large portion of the population thinks that the system is broken and uh, they have to do something about right. it? Can I see that there is a parallel there to these wacko Trumpsters who stormed the Capitol and tried to kill people and did kill seven people? I can see the parallel and I know that it's dangerous. And I know that anytime you go outside the political process, you risk anarchy and death and 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 disruption to people's lives and the end of society as we know it. And it's scary and it's dangerous. But there is a difference between the Black Lives Matter protests that were explicitly protests in which some private property that was covered by insurance got burned over the the actual death likely classifiable as murder of multiple black people for probably racist reasons. Compare that to people who are expressing their rage over insane QAnon-style conspiracy theories and killed seven people in one day doing it. There's a difference there. And you have to be able to draw that line. And I think that the American people should be very introspective about how they should be drawing that line and and seeing the difference here and not equating the two because they're not the same. It's it's not just a difference in degree. I think it is a difference in kind. Well, you mentioned the political process. And speaking of that, when we come back, court packing is going to be the topic. Will Biden go bold? Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Roy Lowe. And I'm Connor Lopes. So uh, President Biden has signed an executive order, Connor, to uh, look into changes regarding the U.S. Supreme Court. And a lot of people say, well, we know what his goal is. He wants to pack the court. Right. And the background is we haven't always had nine members of the U.S. Supreme Court. The mm-hmm. way you change that is a simple uh, act of Congress. Not so simple, of course, but uh, that's how it happens. It's not a constitutional amendment. And, and interestingly, if you go back to the 30s in the Depression, FDR, uh, he failed in his attempt to pack the court, even though he had a nice, comfortable Democrat majority because it was seen as a power grab. Uh, he was very cranky because the Supreme Court was striking down his New Deal reforms. Uh, in 1935 and 36, the Supreme Court struck down more laws than any time in U.S. history. Uh, the uh, National Recovery Administration, NRA, he was not happy. And so when he won the second term in a landslide in 1936, he figured, okay, let's take a bold step. Uh, It was not popular among a lot of folks. Charles Evans Hughes, the chief justice at the time, even testified in Congress. He said, I've heard that people say we're overworked and we need more people. We're not overworked. We're doing fine. But two justices did start voting for the New Deal stuff, and it inspired actually an expression. It was called a switch in time saved nine. So the fact that the New Deal was a little safer when the justices started voting for it, it right. saved the Supreme Court from, from uh, being uh, bigger and, and yeah. being packed. And, and this is a story so- about uh, that, that law students and history students learn about Uh, sources of power and what it means to wield power. And when you control how many members are on the Supreme Court, you in part 
depending on the strength of the institutions and norms and the willingness of, of your caucus to go along with it, you control the outcomes at the Supreme Court. Because the Senate, by the rule, well, Congress, but the Senate holds everything, holds all the cards in Congress. So the Senate controls an entire branch of government. They get to say, I will pack the court if you don't go along with whatever our policies are. And the the repercussions for exercising that power, flexing that power, is that theoretically the voters would say that's overstepping, that's, uh, you know, you're disrupting uh, too much too fast, um, and we want you to undo it, or, or we're going to vote you out because you did it, uh, and then, you know, pack the court back the other way, and then, then we get 26 justices, and then we get 126 justices, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. the, the Supreme Court is a meaningless, uh, empty vessel, and suddenly this power that the Senate wielded uh, no longer is powerful at all. Of course, that would just mean that if we had a thousand justices on the Supreme Court that were constantly being reappointed by the the Senate, uh, the Senate would just effectively uh, have the power of judicial review in our system. So where does power come from? It comes from uh, alternatives, right? It's just like negotiation. It's the art of alternatives. What is the alternative to the Supreme Court going along with FDR's uh, uh, New Deal plans, at least to some degree, the alternative is uh, the Senate gets to put a gun to your head. Yep. So in the next six months or so, this uh, Blue Ribbon Commission, a bipartisan commission, we're told, I haven't really looked into the backgrounds of all the commission members, but uh, some people are saying it tilts a little bit to the left, but you know that wouldn't be a shock. Anyway, they're going to look into it and make some recommendations. And the background is, is kind of interesting. We're going to hear more of it, I'm sure, as the commission comes up with its findings. When America began, uh, there was a Judiciary Act in 1789. There were only six justices. Seems right. a little weird. I mean, you could have a lot of ties. Ties, yeah. Then Congress changed this several times over the next 80 years. It got up to 10 justices, again, even, under Lincoln, and then seven under Andrew Johnson. And then it went to nine under Ulysses S. Grant, and the Judiciary Act of 1869 said it. It said, okay, nine, and has not changed since. So right. that's the background. I guess my question is... <laughs> Isn't a reason not to do it that when the toxic partisanship we've been talking about kind of bubbles over to the point where you have a temporary setback, and the Democrats may see it as more than this, but the whole Kavanaugh and and, uh, Merrick Garland thing and and Gorsuch. And Amy uh, Coney Barrett. Right. But it's it's temporary in the sense that, you know, as Mitch McConnell is warning, wagging his finger, he's saying, you know, the the worm is going to turn, somebody else is going to have a majority. So when you when you have a temporary setback, do you really want to make structural changes when the structure has worked pretty well for 300 years? And if you tear it down, you risk tearing down other elements of society. I mean, is it really smart to make these changes as opposed to simply just digging in and trying to win those elections because elections have consequences? Well, if we say that the system has worked for 300 years, we, we ought to recognize that the system was different before 1869. So the system, maybe current system, has worked, in a sense, for about 120 years. But we can also see many, 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 many instances uh, throughout those 120 years in which the system didn't work. We just explicitly described one it with the court packing plan. Democrats don't see this as a temporary setback. They see this next decade as a very crucial time in not just civil rights, not just climate change, but 
everything. And their attitude... But you know, every single presidential election for the last 30 years, I have listened to people on both sides say, quote, this is the most consequential consequential presidential election in our history. Yeah. And maybe it is. Now, maybe it's different. But I mean, the track record is, you know, people who are really into politics somehow come up with a, a way to explain why this particular one is absolutely the most important in our history. And so I don't know that it really is. I mean, you're right. But at the same time, it's entirely possible that every single election is the most consequential election of our lives because the stakes in politics keep getting higher because the stakes in our lives keep getting higher. As the arc of history is long and purports to bend toward justice, we might see that the need, uh, that the opportunity and the need to bend that arc towards justice uh, gets more dire. Yeah, and if you believe every- we literally are going to be you know, on the brink of extinction in, in a dozen years because of climate change, I can see how you, a person could sincerely say, yeah. this time I'm serious, this really and is. Every, and the and next election will be even more consequential. When we entered the nuclear era, I mean, into the 60s, you know, yeah. when we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, never before did we have the, the possibility of basically half the, the planet expiring within a few minutes. And so, COVID, so in that sense, things are more consequential. COVID has made obvious that our new you know, extremely connected world is more vulnerable to naturally occurring uh, viral infections like COVID or even theoretical bioweapons that someone might make in the future than ever before. And we're only going to get more connected and more vulnerable to these things and that you need governmentals, uh, governmental responses to those uh, viruses, the next plague will be worse than COVID, says pretty much everyone else, or says pretty much every expert who looks at this, who says, we, you can say that, that COVID was a wake-up call, that you know, next time when Ebola is, uh, is airborne, it, we're screwed. Um, and now we've got a, a legacy of people who don't like vaccines and masks for some reason. I mean, every election being the most consequential election of our lives, I, I would say that that makes more sense than not to me. I, I without even trying to examine how consequential next the next election will be. There's so many factors in my mind that make it the scariest and most important one. Every single one that I can see taking dire uh, drastic steps to change the system, especially when the system. As it is built currently is really only good at maintaining the status quo. It's not really very good at improving things. It's good at sitting back and hoping that things improve and then taking credit when they do. So we're going to we're going to look for you to vote in the next election is what you're saying. Hey, if I feel like, you know. Good, good. <laughs> so uh, next time on uh, Too Many Lawyers on the podcast, we may have a George Floyd uh, verdict to talk about. Yeah. So I uh, hope everybody has a great week. We'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. <laughs>